0: It is hard to believe I know, but I am back. And with the new year comes not very much new about how sporadic my schedule can be. Uh, but but I am back. Fill my hole is back for your listening pleasure. And before I get any further into this, if you're if you're listening to this on like iTunes or Spotify, who I'm not making a stand against, uh, you know, subscribe to the RSS for the podcast so that. You don't miss any episodes, because you really never know when they're going to come out at this point. The fuck, even I don't know. And if you're watching this on YouTube, I would ask you to please subscribe to my YouTube channel. Here, I'll even throw in a fancy graphic that I downloaded. Ta-da! Subscribe. Uh, because it helps. It, it, it legitimately helps. If uh, if you think about it, like I don't, I don't I'm don't, not charging for content, right? Like This is content I put out of my own free will for fun. I enjoy it. Sure, it serves a marketing purpose for me. Uh, but... Subscribing is like paying me to some extent. One, it makes me feel nice, I'm not gonna lie. Two, it actually makes sure that the videos that I'm making for you get to you and you get to see them. Turn on the notifications also, that helps. I don't know if the shadow ban from the other channels I contribute on has washed over into my own. I don't feel like it has. I don't really say anything crazy. Granted, that take that with a grain of salt. Um, I don't see how I've said anything that's extremely shadow bannable. I don't really make any statements, like wild, crazy statements. Uh, I just give my opinion on things and I wonder about things. I ponder upon them. I ponder river, if you will. <laughs> but, uh, and, and that's all I'm gonna say about that. For those of you who don't know, my name is Phil Balabanos, you're listening to Phil My Hole, which effectively is a podcast born of a joke Turned into some kind of weird existential philosophical monologue, soliloquy. It's a soliloquy, if you will. That's a good word. I want to tell you a funny story about a soliloquy right now. It just popped in my head. Because that's how film my whole works the wild ride. You never know what my brain might come up with. Um, as usual, there's no topic. I'll, I'll figure it out as I'm going. Um, this is the story. So when I was in the eighth grade, the eighth grade, when I was in the eighth grade, we had to take a drama class. And that's when I was first uh, introduced to Shakespeare. Like, I knew, I knew of Shakespeare. I knew about Romeo and Juliet and stuff. But we, we did like The Tempest, then we did uh, Midsummer Night's Dream. And we went through them in drama class. And I remember sitting, I, I wasn't a bad student. I, I was never a terrible student except in maths. I was terrible, I'm terrible with math. I'm, I'm not good with numbers at all. Even though I'm not as bad as I lead others to believe and that works in my favor sometimes. But I was never a bad student, but I was never a great student. Um, there was very few things that, at that point in my high school career, I guess, my academic career had—I had never shown like, I never excelled at anything. I just—I was good. I was run-of-the-mill, you know, B plus, maybe A minus student, with very little effort. Looking back in hindsight, tiny bit of effort may have excelled, but not, not the point. Uh, I had more fun, <laughs> way more fun, not putting in the effort. Um, so we're we're doing. I think it was. It must have been Midsummer Night's Dream. Anyways, let's say it was Midsummer Night's Dream because it doesn't really matter what the what the play was that we were discussing. So the teacher starts going around now, and I'm, like, slacking in a corner, like, joking around with friends, not really paying attention. But I had read the play. Like, we were given the play, and I did read it, and I enjoyed it. And it's still one of my favorite uh, Shakespeare plays. I mean, I'm not a huge Shakespeare fan, but it's still I prefer Midsummer Night's Dream to some of the others. And... Uh, The teacher asks me about, I don't remember exactly, like, again, the details here are not important. So he asks me to basically break down some sort of metaphor that was in one of the scenes, right? So I'm caught on the spot. Again, I've read the play. I understood it pretty well. I enjoyed it. I read it twice at that point. So I answer the question, and he looks at me, and he gets really upset with me, and he sends me to the principal's office. And I have no idea what I've done, and I'm completely, like, flabbergasted by the whole thing, and the just... The injustice of it. What's wrong with you? And he's really upset with me. This Mr. Bakos, I remember, he's actually a very important teacher in my personal history. Like, had a huge influence on me. And he sends me away, and, I, and I'm just in total shock. So I get there with a note that he told me to give to the principal. I mean, this is like early 2000s, right? So he's written a note, and he's like, "Don't read the note." So I said, "Okay, I won't read the note." On the way upstairs, I, I read the note, obviously, and the note reads cheating. Phil was cheating. He could see the notes over my shoulder and he tried to be a smart ass. So halfway to the principal's office, like kind of confused. I have no idea what he's talking about. So I walk in and I remember my principal, she was a little old lady. She says, Philip, you know, what have you done now? Not that I was in trouble often, but I had a smart mouth and she knew it. And uh, so I tell her what happens. I tell her what happened, I should say. And she looks at me and she goes, okay. I go, and this is the note he gave me to give you. She goes, did you cheat? I go, no, I just, I read the book. She goes, okay, so let's go right back down. So we go right back down, and I walk into that class. <laughs> she sees us, bo- he sees us both, and he's very perplexed. He's like, what seems to be the problem? So she tells him Philip didn't cheat, he just read the book. And he's like, okay, sure. She's like, why don't you believe him? He goes, because he verbatim said what was in my notes. Now... I'll tell you now, I mean, there's no consequences. I did not cheat, I could not see his notes, I couldn't care less, couldn't care enough to cheat. I just really understood the fucking, the theme, the thematic elements, it just, just so happened. And he looked at me and he's like, are you telling me that you, in your own words, described exactly what was in my course plan? I'm like, I don't know what was in your course plan, so I don't know what to tell you. And he kind of, he doesn't apologize to me, but he's like, okay, defeated, confused, Sits me down and then drills me with like six, seven other questions. And I, like I said, I understood the story pretty well and all the thematic elements. Like it spoke to me in that sense. So I answer them and he's like, well, okay. The principal stuck around at that point and she watched. She kind of chuckled. He was a new teacher too. He must have been, I mean, if I was 14, he couldn't have been more than like 22 years old. He was young. We were like his first class that he was teaching. And... uh, (laughs) I just remember the look on his face when he was like, "What the fuck? Who is this kid, smartass?" And he was he was really hard on me after that. But that was the day that I realized that I had a very natural ability that I could cultivate or I could ignore. Uh, I don't want to call it talent because, like, I, I don't like the word talent in general and how it's used. But I had a knack for understanding uh, the nuance of of like of writing, of theater, of of plays, and I guess inadvertently of films also. And that's kind of the first time I ever leaned in the direction of the arts. I mean, I didn't lean heavily into it, it just, I leaned, it was very slight. But yeah, that's a funny story, I don't know why I told that story. Um, We'll use it as a cold open for the episode, yeah. Phil being punished wrongfully. Speaking of wrongfully punished, uh, this morning, as I'm recording this, we just did the morning show, about two hours ago we finished. Uh, Francois Legault came out and said, hey, uh, look, I was just joking about the vax tax. I don't want to divide people. And, and it got me thinking. Obviously, the vax tax was a punitive. It was a threat, right? But I really wonder, was he bluffing and people called his bluff? Or was he fucking serious and he got too scared by the mass disruption in society that's happened with the trucker convoy? I mean, maybe it's not as big as I think it is. I, I really, it's really hard, that's just one thing I will say. It's very hard to get a grasp of how big this movement truly is because the algorithms are feeding me things to aggravate me. So because most of the things I post are loosely in support of a movement of this kind, not specifically the trucker movement, but a movement of its, a similar movement in, in spirit, right? because i mean i have my own issues with the trucker movement uh, cuz i don't think it actually is a movement i think it's like 20 30 different movements that have joined together so there's no clear i mean there's one clear demand which is drop all the mandates i get that but i don't know how 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 applicable that is when you have so many different groups and i mean there there's a beauty in it too there's a beauty in the unity of so many different groups coming together even if they are some i mean there are people who are Terrible people at that protest, you can't argue that. Any protest will have assholes, right? Any subsection, any slice of society will have a bunch of assholes in it. It's just a statistical impossibility for them not to be there. So what does that mean for the size of it? Like how many people support what's happening? Because I've spoken to people who are very, very pro the movement. I also, I mentioned on the morning show, I've seen a lot of people posting on their social media saying if you support the movement, let me know so I can unfollow you. And on the opposite spectrum, and it's definitely a spectrum, if you don't support the movement, let me know who you are and I will unfollow you. Now, I think it's crazy to say, oh, you have a different opinion from me. I'm unfollowing you. Uh, I think it's crazy to put yourself in an echo chamber. And I feel sometimes like I am in a weird echo chamber built by the algorithm trying to make me angry, which is why I don't have a clear grasp of how successful or how big this movement actually is. Um, But what I disagree with the most what I dislike the most is the idea that you want to be in a forum of people that only share your opinion so anyone who's basically come out and said on my social media and it's been about 12 people I think as of this uh no 13 people as of this morning anyone who said if you disagree with me unfollow me no sorry if you disagree with me I will unfollow you I've unfollowed right and I don't mean the ones who are for or against I mean on both sides anyone who said I will unfollow you I unfollowed them Uh, because that to me is a sign of your level of intelligence. The the idea that you don't want to be challenged, the idea that you don't want to be disagreed with, the idea that you don't want to hear this nonsense confuses me to a level that I can't fully articulate. I think you're stupid. If you don't want to be challenged ever in your life, you just want to sit around and be told that you're right and everyone agrees with you, fuck off. I want nothing to do with you. Suck a fat dick to quote the French. Um, I, I think that is probably the central problem for all of the problems in society. People don't care about dialogue anymore. People don't care about discourse. They don't care about what's right, they care about being right. And they just want to be patted on the back for being right. So they surround themselves by people who agree with them. I have always sought out groups of people who I disagree with. I mean, at some point, eventually, I may start to agree with them, that happens. But I've always looked for people who have a very wildly different view of the world than I do. Um, I mean, that may not be obvious on the morning show. I mean, because I try to not let the show become this, like, Fill My Hole is its own thing. And because it's on a comedy network, I will always lean towards the joke rather than some kind of ultimate goal. Uh, I know people have accused me often of backing down from Pantellis when he challenges me. I don't really back down because I don't want to have the argument. I only back down if I think it doesn't serve the episode. And It's not like I agree with him on everything, and he doesn't agree with me on everything. Is he way more vocal about it? He tends to be. Um, but again, it's a... Com- it's, it's, it's Guys... If if the morning show is the natural evolution of this just thing, the most hated name in news, the realist fake news, the only real fake news on the internet, because it's honest about it, then obviously we're not looking to give you hard-hitting, journalistic, like investigative journalism hits, right? Uh, Hits, not hits, but facts. Like We're giving you surface facts. George is giving you the story, and we're giving you our opinions. If anything, it's an op-ed. It really is. Um, It doesn't mean that we're giving you fake news. The news is real, like we're getting it from the headlines. Now, if the headlines are feeding us fake news as a society, I mean, I can't control that. Yes, at that point, you could argue that I'm part of the problem and I'm regurgitating stories. But for the most part, if the story seems wonky, slightly fishy, one of us is gonna address that and we at least discuss it and we have a dialogue about it. Sure, it's all in jest for the most part. It's all in good fun. We have had some very serious episodes also, it happens. But at the end of the day, we're taking the headlines, we're having some fun, and we're giving you our opinion, right? Obviously, there's not a lot of fun to be had when it comes to COVID. It's not a very happy topic. It's not something that is easily laughed at. But I mean, the only thing you can do about COVID at this point is laugh a little bit because it's sort of out of our control as regular people, um, We don't know a lot of things about a virus that has completely upended our world. It's not that we don't know them because we don't have the technology. Like, I'm not talking Spanish flu, people, a demon came across the land and killed us. Like, that's not not what's going on. We don't know things because we're not allowed to discuss things. And I'll go to the Rogan example, right? Rogan brings on people who are experts in their fields. I mean, sometimes other experts don't agree with the, with the statement that these are experts, but I mean, he's had people on both sides of most conversations. Uh, Rogan is not a news show. Rogan is not a medical information show. If you're, and I've said this before many times. If you're getting your medical, if you're building your medical opinion around a single episode of a podcast, or from a conversation with a bunch of people who also saw that podcast, and are just regurgitating the same information in a circle, circle jerky, circle jerky, you have a bigger problem, right? So, why did people come at him so hard if he's not that? Because he's giving you a separate, no, what he's giving you is another avenue, an opportunity to get information from a different source. And that seems to not be okay with a lot of, I mean, the powers that be, let's call them that for lack of a better word, Um, which I don't understand. If there's nothing inherently nefarious happening, which I'm not saying there is, there's definitely a lot of incom- incompetence happening around that's uh, absolutely i will say that with 1000 percent certainty the pandemic has been mishandled that is a statement that is not my opinion anyone on any side of this conversation can agree to that i think anyways but if they don't want us to listen to other things then why you understand what i'm trying to say like i, I confused myself there but if everything they're saying is so transparent, why would the idea of us discussing something else be a problem? And I and I've asked this to a lot of people, and some people tell me, well, the very fact that they're discussing it takes away, you know, the trust with the go- to the government, which I, I don't think we should have ever inherently trusted the government all the time about anything, not only COVID, just in general. Then you make people question, and then people don't listen, and then we're all in danger. I mean, that doesn't make any sense. That sounds like the the rantings of a madman, like, so so hold on, let me, let me just try and understand this thought here. Let's have a sip of coffee. Asking questions is bad because it may make you question what you're being told, which you can't actually verify. That's odd, that's an odd thing to say. I mean, I'm paraphrasing, no one's ever actually said that. I mean, I fucking hope no one's ever said that from the government, but it's odd, the idea that we cannot We cannot ask questions, even if they're open-ended, like we can't get an answer. I understand. Sure, some stuff we don't know. I still want to ask. Maybe one day down the line you can answer it, but maybe not right now, but I'm I'm still putting it out there. And that all comes down to how things have been split down the middle, right? It's not really the middle. But you have this convoy of like salt-of-the-earth type people for the most part. These are not... Professionals for them. I, mean, I, don't, I can't speak to the actual demographics of the convo But from what I've read and what I'm seeing and the tweets I see the support comes from like a working middle-class slice of the country Maybe not necessarily salt of the earth like they're not you know fucking digging and shit But I'm just saying but the truckers are definitely blue-collar workers. That's for sure. So You have this subsection the subsection that has always for the most part been represented in politics by the left, the progressive left, uh, for the working class, the socialists, you know, these people, uh, the, the proletariat, if you will. They're the ones who should be supporting this movement, and yet they're not, because their agendas politically have shifted towards more government control, because the government should manage the system, because that's its job, in their opinion. And that is one of the strangest I mean, it's an oxymoron for a leftist party to not support support a people's movement. That's weird. Uh, And then you have the conservatives who, I mean, historically have supported the wealthier slice of society who are now trying desperately to attach themselves to this movement in like a Hail Mary demagogue-style approach where they can position themselves to lead this movement of angry Canadians. Excuse me. And I mean, that didn't work. Everyone was ousted. Uh, so I truly wonder how this is going to play out. It's int- I'll say this much. This has been the most interesting part of the pandemic for me. Uh, the rest of it, it didn't have any, like, I never saw a light. I never saw, you know, we're doing this because and there's progress. I mean, when the vaccines first came out, there was definitely a part of me that was excited, like, okay, this is almost over, but that clearly was not the case and then things got darker and darker and darker and darker as we continued. But this has definitely been the most interesting because social unrest, although it can be very damaging to people's lives and it can be disrupt, uh, disruptive, and I understand that the residents in Ottawa, whatever side they're on, some of them are fed up with the honking. Like I understand that. I get it. I lived near back when the, the Red Square movement happened in Quebec where they used to hit their pots and pans. It was annoying, but it is also part of why they do it. And that's always been my big issue with protests because they disrupt to get attention. But by disrupting, you allow the government, because normally they're protesting against like a government, you allow the government to be able to paint you in a negative light to the other citizens who are disrupted. And they always spin it to, it's not our fault that we didn't do what we should have and now they're mad. It's their fault that they're disrupting your day. So the idea that you're disturbed, not disturbed, but you're bothered by the noise, although I completely understand it, don't focus your rage at the movement, focus your rage at the people who the movement is angry at because even if you wanna wear a mask, a visor, 10 sets of gloves and a fucking rebreather, part of you knows that not everything that's happening makes sense from a scientific standpoint, right? Like if the vaccinated can spread to the same degree as the unvaccinated, then there's really no reason other than to protect them from barring them from the rest of society. In the same logic, even if they're barred from most of society, if the virus is as dangerous as it seems, we're all gonna pass it around between us and maybe not get sick from the vaccines. Eventually, it will get to them anyways. You're not really protecting them, you're just punishing them. You're making sure that whatever time they have between now and actually catching COVID is gonna suck for them. And that is not a government's place to punish, so that you, like this is, co- that's coercion. It doesn't really make sense. We are we have one of the highest vaccination rates in the world. Okay? If a vaccination rate this high is not keeping our infrastructure from crumbling, our healthcare infrastructure, another 10, 15, 20% will not. I mean, again, I'm not a statistician, but it doesn't feel that way. But at the same time, in a Quebec, in a Quebec, <laughs> in, a, in a country, fuck man, goddammit. In a province the size of Quebec, which I think sits at eight million people, which is not very dense, by the way. There's not a huge population density. Sure, the Greater Montreal area is quite dense. Uh, nothing in compared to other parts of the continent, really. But half of the population lives in the Greater Montreal area, I, th- I think. Correct me if I'm wrong in the comments. But if 8 mil- an eight million person population cannot sustain 3,500 beds in the hospitals. I don't mean ICU beds. I don't mean special treatment beds. I mean beds, period. Places for people who are sick to lay down. If 3,500 overloads our system, we have a serious fucking problem. And anything the government says that is not to that effect is them trying to distract you so you don't realize that government after government after government has ignored the healthcare system has allowed it to fall into a state of just utter, it's disastrous, I mean I worked in it, I saw it. The amount of people who fall through the cracks, forget beds, just through the cracks, it doesn't make sense. Because, I mean I, I wanna say because and give you an answer, but I don't have a real answer. It's not my place to solve the problem. I wish I had an easy solution that didn't have philosophical implications. I would give it to the government tomorrow. I would say, listen guys, I fucking figured it out. This is what we're doing. I understand. I'm not stupid. I'm not just bitching for the sake of bitching. I understand that it is a fucking Herculean task and almost impossible. How do you rebuild something without tearing it down? Because you can not tear it down because we always need to have it going, right? So, w- because, so I said because. Because in my opinion, the administrative side of the system is overinflated eats up too much money, and does not allow, the. Bu- it restricts the budget from going to places that are important. I used to do, one of the, I, I did a lot of jobs when I worked for the healthcare system. I worked at the CLSC, for, it used to be called CSSS, Centre de Services Socio et Santé? Is that what the assets were? St-? Hold on, I can't remember. Centre de Services Sociaux et Santé. Anyways, CSSS de la Montagne is where I worked while I was in film school, and I stayed there for a few years after. I mean, I won't get into the details of how that happened, uh, it was another life, and I've done it on a podcast, I've done it on a vlog, I've, I've told the story many times. I was an administrative. I was an administrative agent, uh, admin class 3, which is like the lowest like entry level, right? Don't need much education. You're more or less either you know, filing papers, working in the archives, again filing papers, or you're working at the reception, dealing with clients. For the most part, most of the postings I had while I was doing this for six or seven years, we're at the reception because I'm good at talking to people and I, it's useful. It's useful to have someone at the front who's not a fucking jaded old French Canadian woman who's five you know, five months from retirement who hates everyone at this point in her life because working there, and I can attest to this, like it was hard to work there psychologically because you're seeing sick people. They can't get the service they want or need, so they're angry with you all the time. You're constantly getting yelled at. Refugees arrive. They're getting better service sometimes than fucking residents, but really even their existence is fucking terrible because of the way the system is built because you gotta go from one admin to another on a different floor and get another form. And you gotta speak to someone. who's fucking Byzantine bureaucracy. What a mess. So it's just constant, like you're dealing with the marginal, like you're dealing with a marginalized subsection of the of society sometimes, 80% of the time. But even the 20% that is, are not marginalized, they're getting shit access too. They're paying taxes too. They have every same right that everyone else does, but the services cannot accommodate them because there's just not enough service providers. And by providers, I mean healthcare professionals, nurses, uh, nurse clinicians, is that what they're called? Nurse clinicians, uh, doctors, uh, anything you can think of. Social work. Social worker was, I mean, that's a whole other fucking conversation. I won't even get into it. The amount of people that came in needing social work, like a social worker to help them, for psychosocial problems, like maybe 40% of everyone I would see at a clinic every day. Um, And then other programs, super advanced and awesome, like the, the, um, the STI testing center was like, I mean, honestly, it was efficient. It was crazy efficient how fast it worked, but it was only twice a week. So I don't know how it is now. This is like six years ago, right? But I saw the system failing daily Before my eyes, I was a part of that failed system because sometimes, not all the time, some of the postings I did make sense. But some of them really, truly, I didn't need to be doing what I was doing. Uh, A computer with like two lines of code, simple lines of code could have solved the problem. I used to, I I tell this story often because it's one of the most banal things I did when I worked there. It's how I discovered Joe Rogan because I needed something to shut my brain off because I was so depressed doing this. My job was, in the morning, I would go to the central archives and I would pick up a stack of papers, maybe four, there were a few stacks, but like, they were about three feet high, Just sheets. You know the notes the doctors write? No, they had uh, a name or a date of birth or some kind of identifying marking on them, right? So you can know who this patient was. Most of the time, they had a file number. It was written by hand sometimes, sometimes it was stamped or anyways. My job was now not to scan these documents, because we were, we were in the process of digitizing our medical archive, right? My job was not to scan them. My job was to take that number, put it into a computer in front of me, open their file, and print out barcode stickers from that system to then put on that paper so that paper could then be scanned by someone else in another department. What? I could have easily First of all, let's pretend like iPads didn't exist, which they did and they couldn't have just done the notes electronically. It's a big system to overhaul. I understand there was an intermediary phase. I think by now they're probably there. But I could have easily opened that file, had a scanner next to me, scanned that fucking paper, and that was it. We created a whole separate set of steps which had a salary, new equipment for these special printers, ink, paper, time, like... A st- an intermediary step that didn't need to exist. I know this is a very simple example, but imagine if that money, because it wasn't just me doing it, there was like in in just my CSSS, there must have been at least f- uh, four people every day doing this, making about $17 an hour, you know, uh, working 40 hours a week, do the math. You're telling me that couldn't have paid for one more doctor's salary or a new machine or a bed or something? It could have. So, It's little things like this, it's just a a lot of little inefficiencies that pile up and they create a deficit, and then you don't have the money for the things you need. Eight million people, eight million fucking people, and we only have 3,500 beds. I I don't know if that's actually accurate. I I read it yesterday, but I never double checked it, but I'm just, for the sake of this rant at this point, I'm gonna assume it is accurate. So yeah, that's where we're at. Uh, And because of the people who don't wanna disagree, the people who don't wanna know the things that are wrong, because they just want to know that they're right, we have no idea what's going on. All we do know is that the government is backtracking in certain places, the federal, the provincial government, the federal government is digging in its heels and saying this fringe element of our society or whatever, and maybe it is a fringe element of our society. I mean, I know they're all, they've adopted it, right? Like the term, we the fringe. But I, look, I I never truly support. I've never supported a movement wholeheartedly. I mean, like I said at the beginning, I support, the ideas behind a movement of this type. But I don't know that anything will actually change because civil disobedience, like if you look at the civil rights, I mean, I don't want to draw that parallel, but I will anyways. If you look at the civil rights movement, there was violence, okay? Nothing is ever achieved without violence. So I don't want to see violence. And I know that them just staying there will probably lead, violence eventually, but the wrong kind of violence. It won't be, you know, the the government gets fed up and sends in the RCMP or the fucking military and oversteps for a Western nation, a civilized Western nation, especially fucking Canada. Can you imagine seeing tanks on the parliament to fucking Tiananmen style? Like, if that were to happen, this government would be done. Like, it would be done instantly. So I don't think that'll happen. What I think will end up happening is The people who don't support, especially the residents of Ottawa, I think there may be clashes there eventually, and that's anathema to the whole point of this movement, because it's supposed to be about unity. But how do you educate someone who will not listen? How do you educate someone, and I don't mean educate like this is the truth, I just mean how do you give, sorry, you know what, I'm gonna rephrase that. How do you explain your position to someone who's not willing to hear it? They're not interested in hearing another opinion. Whatever they believe is what they believe, and that's it, it's become dogmatic. People's opinions on the pandemic have become like religion, and that's really, really frightening. I was raised Greek Orthodox. I went to a Greek Orthodox school. We used to go to fucking church. We'd say our prayer every morning. I'm an atheist, okay? I went, I experienced what religion can be for someone with many positives. I'm I'm not shitting on it all the way through. At some point in that, you know, evolution of me as a person, religion and how I viewed the world, they didn't... I couldn't put them together anymore because I need more information, always. So, the idea that you cannot question something because you have to just take it on faith, I'm not okay with that. Um, and a Christian might tell me that it's because I never truly understood faith. And maybe that's true, but I wasn't able to ask that question. So, you know, there's that. Maybe I'm an agnostic. I don't know. I don't. I think I'm pretty much, I'm, yeah, I kind of wish I was an agnostic. I have a pretty nihilistic view of existence, so I'm pretty sure I'm an atheist at this point. Um, it, hoping that I'm wrong, right? Because, you know, who doesn't want to live forever? It's a great selling point, honestly. They should make t-shirts. Um, so, worshipping this, this position, this opinion that you have, as though it's like the word of God, you must know deep down that that's wrong. And all these like snarky, uh, clever, like, oh, you're unvaccinated and you're going out. Like, you know these fucking memes that people post, or then you have the other one, hey sheeple, won't you guys bow down, bow down sheep? Like, who are you fighting? I'm confused. Are you fighting the disinformation or are you fighting each other, right? I think people don't even know. That's the biggest problem with our, especially the millennial generation, we keep acting as though it's okay that we're being fucking bitches because we never had to struggle, and we're soft. But the fact of the matter is, we, sure, we never had a war or famine, but like we came up in some of the strangest fucking times of the last 70 years. Not to discredit a fucking world war, that was weird, but in terms of the Western world, like we entered the job market, people of my generation. First of all, we we experienced 9-11, like, we were old enough to see it and understand what was happening, and young enough to be so frightened by it that we didn't know what to do, right? I was 13 or 12 when 9-11 happened. Um, Then we entered the job market (laughs) when, you know, the crisis happened, 2008 crisis happened. And as we were entering the job market, most of us, way overeducated compared to previous generations, except for the Gen Xers, realized that our diplomas weren't actually as guaranteed as we thought they were because Gen Xers all had diplomas and they were already in the workforce, many of whom were incompetent, I assume, because statistics. <laughs> and so you have all these people with like degrees, like some of them have master's degrees in, in fields that don't really have jobs associated to them who are doing random stuff. I mean, I'm not a good example, like I won't use myself, because I went and I did a trade because I found something I really loved and that's what I wanted to do. but. So we enter a crisis, there are no jobs for us, I mean, there are some jobs, but there are not as many jobs as there are us, then we start to realize that, okay, we we create this like hustle culture, this entrepreneur millennial hipster shit on Instagram, social media explodes, and we've built these online businesses, you know, we're trailblazers in that sense, and then the pandemic happens, and we realize, oh, we're never going to buy a home, like Because if you think about it, I was talking to somebody. they're like, what do you mean you can't buy a house? You're just not making enough money. That's really not the case. That's not what's happening. Uh, Would I love to make a lot more money than I'm making? Yeah. I would also like to work less than I'm working because I work all the fucking time just to make enough money to be okay. Um, So, give and take, right? Like, I want to spend time with my kids. I can't work fucking 70 hours a week. And I've been working since I was a kid. Like, I'm not a stranger to work. I've done very, very unpleasant jobs, like labor intensive, right? So I'm not lazy in that sense. Contrary to what other generations would say of my generation, but they're just confused. They think we're Gen Zers, so I mean, that's a whole other thing. So I was talking to someone and they said to me, you just need to make more money. I go, listen, uh, you, how old are you? They're like, I'm 55. Okay, you have a home? Yes. When did you buy it? They're like 25 years ago. It's in a nice neighborhood, it's a nice home, it's a big home. I go, what did you pay for it? They're like, we paid a lot at the time, it was about $180,000. $180,000. So the cost of a home in, what did I say, 25 years ago? So like 1995, let's just say 1995, was $180,000, okay? For a nice home in a nice area. Not a starter home, a home. What the the millennial moms call a forever home, okay? $180,000. That same home today costs a million dollars now. It's not the only thing that's gone up in price. Forget the fact that we're adding new rec- uh, New, what's the word I'm looking for? Expenses, new expenses like telecommunication stuff that didn't exist in 1995, like cell phones and data and all that shit, okay. which at this point you need. It's not like, I, oh, I want to have a cell phone. You need to have a cell phone and internet. There's no way around it. So milk, bread, toast, clothing, insurance, all of these things have exponentially increased over time due to inflation and the cost of living and all that shit. But salaries, and I don't mean the minimum wage only, because that's a pretty obvious marker, but I'm not a minimum wage worker, so I'm not gonna use that as an example. Salaries have not followed the same trajectory. Now, if everything costs more, and we make more, like if everything goes up by 40% in that 25 years, and salaries will only go up by like 10%, and on top of that 40% increase, And these are fake numbers, I'm just using round numbers. And on top of that 40% increase in the price of things that existed then, there's another chunk of new expenses that didn't exist then, that we now have, and let's say those value, those are equal to about 20% of that 40%, how can you sit there at 55 and tell me you need to make more money? Like, fuck you, (laughs) honestly, just fuck you. You clearly don't understand what's happened because we didn't make this mess, right? I'm not trying to blame another generation, but we didn't make the mess. We just stepped into it, right? And I was talking to some younger people the other day who were like, what's the point anyways? The fucking world's gonna kill us, it's all poison anyways. So like, I have this kind of life crisis happening where I don't know if I can buy a home or, it's, it's, or I could, but it, like, what's the point at this point? It's so expensive, why would I? So I have this, and then I think of the next generation going, well, the world's gonna kill us, that's really fucking dark. To be raised thinking that the world you know will end when we don't actually know that it will end, like we're not past that line yet, right? That's fucked up. So the world that my kids will grow up in is even bleaker and darker. And I just don't know how the, the current pandemic politics, you know, the way people are turning on each other, how, that makes it that exacerbates it it makes it way worse and I think the only way for any of us to have a brighter future again because it's pretty bleak right now, even if the fucking mandates get lifted and we're all free again, we're all free to do what exactly you broke this the system broke it it fell apart so I mean this this was not the fucking first episode of twenty twenty two I thought I was gonna give you guys I'm gonna stop I'm not even gonna finish that thought because It's sad to think about it, really. Mostly because I've done my 40 minutes and I think I'd like to uh, start processing this and getting it ready. I want everyone to know that I am back. Fill my hole is back. I will try to be more regular with the schedule. I say that all the time. Pretend like I'm an alcoholic who lies, you know? Like, I'll be better next time. Yeah, it'll be great. I'll be back. It will be more regular. Um, I also want to do more stuff with the podcast. Like, I want to have complimentary, like, content with the podcast not just this podcast but maybe start doing interviews again now that everybody's a bit more comfortable being in the same room with each other uh, I really would like to have guests I'm also producing a YouTube series and a uh, podcast series for someone else right now when I start launching that I will share it here because I mean normally with my client work I won't share my client work in my podcast I mean it seems like a simple thing I could do, but at the same time, like I like to keep them separate to some extent. I will tell client stories from time to time. But this one is legitimately interesting because the the person in question is uh, an expert in their field and they're talking about like the future of the economy and how the metaverse and crypto and all that stuff reflects and changes the future uh, in terms of like money and how to make a living and that kind of stuff. So I actually, I'm very interested in the content, which helps because it's long form. So producing it producing something you're not interested in is very hard. Um, So yeah, I'll probably be a guest on his podcast too when he launches, just to, you know, because I'm a a seasoned podcast veteran now. (laughs) So we can just kind of figure out the format. Um, If you need videos for your businesses, if you're watching this and you're amused by me, why wouldn't you be? Balabanos.com, you can see that my rates are there for packages, for videos. Uh, If you still think in 2022 your business isn't the type of business that needs videos, you are sadly mistaken. Um, but that's okay, call me, we'll figure it out. Everybody needs to have videos now. If I've learned anything, it's that people cannot absorb long form content when it's written, they need everything shown to them. Videos do that, and you could go the lazy route, the easy route, and use one of these little apps that just give you these like boilerplate videos that are not personalized to you. You could do that. It'd probably, probably do some good for your business. But if you're business, if you're especially if you're a smaller business, you are that business. That business is you. It's a reflection of you as a person uh, and your place in this world. Tell your story properly. Let me help you. Um, that's it. I'll say Happy New Year in February because I want to be a dick and I just watched that episode of Seinfeld. And I will see you guys in the next episode of Fill My Hole whenever that may be. So My whole This podcast is available on YouTube in its full video form. If you're lazy and you don't want to Google it and you don't want to search on YouTube, balabanos.com, hit the podcast section. You can subscribe directly to the RSS feed there. My name is Phil Balabanos and I'll see you next time.